HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at 3, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the, the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. I get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. Hi, I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. This week's theme is youth. We'll have a report on how migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border are being housed and fed. Right now, what we're very worried about is just the influx of kids created by this zero-tolerance policy. We'll also look into a program that's ensuring free summer meals for kids are only a text message away. Summer is the hungriest time of year for a kid who may not have that safety net of school meals. We discover a new home economics curriculum. I'm not trying to raise a generation of chefs. I'm trying to raise a generation of nourishers who can nourish themselves. And we meet a teen chef who's talked his way into several of New York's top kitchens. I never try and be, like, annoying about it, but I really want to get my foot in the door. Tune in to this week's episode of Meet and Three, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, where each week I interview someone who works behind the scenes in the world of food, media, or hospitality. If you like what you hear and want more inspiration and real-life examples of how people find the path that's right for them and have news from the world at large, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or right here on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is someone who is at the white hot center of the food media universe. If you want to hear about the most important topics from diversity in the food world to how to get the job you want, you are going to want to listen in. My guest today is Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of the restaurant site Eater. Amanda oversees 24 city sites, unless you've added a new one. No, I think that's correct. That's still still (laughs) accurate, yep. Um, And directs the brand's video and social media channels. She also writes an amazing weekly newsletter. Thank you. That's actually, it's totally my cheat sheet, right? I get to the end of the week and I'm like, if I missed anything, at least I know that Amanda didn't miss it. I got you. Yeah, you got me. And that's really good, particularly if I ever want to have like a blackout, do not read week. Um, you're there for me mm-hmm. and for anyone else who um, who signs up. And um, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
So I'm a huge admirer of what you do. Having carried that editor-in-chief title myself, I have some sense of, uh, you know, what it means, although our eras are pretty different. Very different. But I also look up to your career because you did it for so long. And I think (laughs) I've been an eater for 10 years. And sometimes I stop and think, like, how can I keep doing this? But you were at Food & Wine for for 20. Yeah, for 21. So, for 21. Sorry. Same thing. No, every every second counts. I will tell you I was crawling after 19. (laughs) So those last two, I feel. So it 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 inspires me because you realize, like, this industry is always changing. The job is always changing. There's always going to be something new. It's not something you tire of. No. And, and in my case, we just kept adding and adding and adding. Like when I got there, exactly. you know, there was one thing and I know you guys just added a, a TV show. So right. Very similar. Like you you're get, like, okay, I have one little website and then there's 24 and then there's video and social and newsletters and now TV and all this stuff. So it, it keeps it keeps it interesting it does because you get to you get to learn and, and try new stuff but always through that that central lens that mm-hmm. you've identified one of the things that that struck me as I was thinking about this conversation is that when I went to food and wine I was um, you know I, I looked at the landscape of the food magazines and they were basically doing recipes mm-hmm. right and and food and wine was primarily doing recipes I always joked like we were really good at the here's eight ways with eggplant thing (laughs) and I really wanted to bring more news and information to what was basically a a recipe brand and our way of bringing the news was to focus on the chefs and what they were doing that was new and the trends in food and you know talking about like what fish was cool this week right but that really at this point seems such a naive and simplistic interpretation of news because when I look at what you did, you actually were next gen. You looked around and looked at, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, you mm-hmm. tell me, yeah. you looked around and said, you know, what is it that food media is and what could it be? What's missing? Mm-hmm. And so you look at some of the old world stuff and it's like, that's nice. It's pretty cheerleadery, but there's all this other really compelling, interesting stuff that goes unaddressed. The sexism, the racism, the um, labor, labor, right, fair wages. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear um, like about your thoughts on that pivot because either when you got there had a snarkier tone. Mm-hmm. It was definitely about where to eat, but it was calling people out. It was Yeah, and the focus was much more local too. Like as we grew, we did expand our national reach. So when we started, when I started, I was just running the New York site and then we had people in five other cities doing their local markets. So, and it was definitely based on Gawker, like that's where our DNA comes from. So it was covering the local scenes, openings, closing, chefs moving around, but being a little funny about it, a little snarky about it. Like we are going to, you were being very snarky. (laughs) And we're going to sneak into the restaurant. We're not going to, we're trying to go around PR. We're like, PR is not our friend here. Um, And then as we grew and grew and covered more cities, we learned that, first of all, not every city is going to take well to that. Like Mm -hmm. when we launched Charleston, like that was not an okay way of operating. Mm -hmm. You have to be much nicer in the South. And you learn that various cities take things in different ways. We just launched London last year and they are great with snarkiness. Like they love a little, a little, a little, you know, attitude. I mean, their um, best critics they, are ex- off All the of charts. their media is yeah. like that. So they kind of embrace it. And we need, you couldn't have an American writing that site anyway, but like having our British people understand like, this is how you speak to the British audience is really important. Um, but yeah, as we grew, we realized that there were national conversations to be had. Um, and we're still going to take people to task, of course, like that's part of our mission, but it's not always going to be, you know, snarky for sure. But you you took on the greater conversations. Um, when you were thinking about that, how did you think about it? Like, did you think you know the industry sort of needs um, a a watch guard? You know, you mm. need to expose and change things, like so that is sort of an activist mentality. What were you thinking? It's more that I think over time you get tired of doing the same stories. And because food has grown to be such an important cultural, I don't know, conversation topic and such a thing that people can connect over, it became easier to cover food in all kinds of ways. So it's not a niche audience anymore. Everyone can talk about food. Food touches our lives in so many ways. So it was like, okay, we can cover sexism and discrimination and immigration and labor if we want to. And especially if no one else is doing it. And because we've been able to, to grow, we have the resources to do it. Like, I don't think, 
people don't cover these things because they don't want to. Sometimes they just can't. That's a really Im- important distinction to have the reporters on the ground who can, right. can do it and to be able to fund it. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, is... That's a huge part of it. Like if you only have a staff of three and you have to put out a magazine every month, you're not always going to be able to, you know, cover the things you want to cover. That's an exaggeration, but, you know. So let's talk about the um, sexual harassment in the rest. You know, a, mm-hmm. a really fun, light topic. Sure. <laughs> I'm here for um, it. <laughs> but one of the things that interested me was your very strong stand of taking people off the site who are known Mm -hmm. harassers, right? And not supporting them. And of course, writing the coverage. But to me, that notion of pulling people out of a list. Right, right, right. And saying, I'm not covering you because there's a lot of great people to cover. Right. Um, How did that come about? And is that a controversial decision within the team? It was less controversial within the team. Definitely controversial for some readers, like I got a lot of mail about it. Um, But our stance was right now, especially in the way that media is distributed, you can't always explain everything. So if you put someone on a map of like best pizzerias in Oakland, it might end up in an open table filter or you might Google it and it just ends up in this carousel and you can't say, hey, a lot of people like this pizza place, but just so you know, your money is going to this man who is accused of harassing, you know, many people. So we felt like, why don't we pick a different pizza place to put on that map? And so it's kind of like that simple. It ends up snowballing into bigger and bigger decisions where you're looking at these national lists and you're looking at, okay, well, this person was accused of this, but what do we know? What's the proof? And then it it can it becomes a very complex question and situation. Um, but it's still it's still, I think, bottom line logistically makes sense to me. Like if I can, I'm gonna highlight somebody else. Right. I think that the um the role of media as a judge mm-hmm. is very complex. Oh, yeah. And also, there's what you don't know. Right. And there's what hasn't come out. So, you know, there might be somebody on a list, and I'm like, that guy is such a harasser. Right, right, It hasn't right. been in the press. Like, you guys don't know. So, oh, and people will, you know, there's a, a, there is a big restaurant group here in New York that people will tweet at me or make um, or subtweet at us to say like, oh, why are you covering them when they're harassers? It's like, you have to show me. Like, I, you, you have to do the journalism. With, with, if I'm taking someone off a list, it means there's a public incredible accusation against them. It means that something has been vetted either by a court or by a journalist or by, there's something out there. It can't just be rumor and hearsay. And I think a lot of times with social media, people want to just take them down in that way, which is like, oh, well, I heard, blah, blah, blah. And there are so many things that, I have heard as an editor, I'm sure you have heard as an editor that you can't do anything about it because no one's going to go on the record and no one's going to put their name to something or even go on background with you. So you just have to live with that and pretend everything's normal, I guess. I don't know. Until, I mean, or unless you want to put reporters on it to um, find out. And then you can't really be in the business of, you know, (laughs) you're like a um, a bureau of sexual right, investigation. Exactly. When, know, that's- when that when John Besh's story first happened that the New Orleans Times Picayune published, there was a decision we had to make, like how much money can we focus on this? And how much emotional um, time can our reporter spend on this? Like there was one, there was a moment where I was thinking like, oh, here, I have this one reporter, I can just change her beat and have her focus on these things. And then we were talking about it and I realized like, this is not something she wants to do. Mm-hmm. That she, this is not something she wants to spend her life on for the next year. And we need to think about like, what is the balance here? How do we, how do we cover these stories while still making sure we do the rest of our jobs? And also, I think there's a, an, also something of a conflict. Like people are the, your readers some of them are interested and some of them are sick of it. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like how much of it is your responsibility because it's a greater responsibility and how much is it, you know, look, my readers are tired of it. I just don't, right. I, I can't, you know, carry this on as my, not right. my, but like eater's burden. Yeah, if, the, if someone comes to us, like with any story, if there's a good story and there's enough there for us, we will pursue it. But we can't just be chasing threads forever and ever. Yeah. Um, let's talk about lists, because you were talking yeah, yeah, about like, yeah. a, a piece list. So um, at Food & Wine, heaven knows, like we had one hugely successful list, which is mm-hmm. the Best New Chef list. And from that, I was like, oh my gosh, lists are so great. Right. Let's do more lists. Uh-huh. And we like birthed list after list after <laughs> list. I mean, we really... And, you know, sort of back in the day, there was less competition right. in the list 
zone. Mm-hmm. Um, you're quite outspoken about the stupidity of some lists. Yes, yeah, oh, and, yes, yeah. <laughs> There's some very stupid lists. Yeah, um, and I also create a lot of lists. And so you also create a lot I'm, of lists. Deep, deep in the, <laughs> the list world. So, how are you feeling about lists, particularly when you look at? Um, well, how do you feel about lists? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I guess it depends on the type of list and what you're serving to people. Like at, at the very smallest end, like we do a lot of very locally driven lists of like the 12 new restaurants know about in New York. Like that's fine. Those do really well. They, they are helping people figure out where to eat. Um, on the national level, I'm, I still grapple with how many things like this we should be doing and whether they're worth the investment and how they actually help people um, and trying to measure like, okay, how do they do? I think our internal focus which is true with a lot of media, especially over the last few years, is making sure they are representative. Like, okay, is it a list of the 12 best new restaurants in America and they're all owned by white guys? Let's not do that list. Let's make (laughs) sure, like, we are broadening our view of what is best new. Like, can we make sure we have a diversity of people represented, but also how expensive is this restaurant? What type of food are they serving? Like, let's really represent America in a way that we probably weren't doing a few years ago. Um, I I feel like that's where the list definition um, becomes more interesting Mm -hmm. and more challenging. Right. Right. Because when you're doing Best New Restaurant and it's essentially either a price, exclusivity, originality, Mm -hmm. um, you know what that list is. Right. But once it's just great food, the world is so large. And then I feel like the ability of the list gets a little bit more challenging. Yeah. I mean, we have a challenge. We have a list we do every year. It's a guide to the 38 essential restaurants in America. And it was built off the success of the local list that we do. But I think we realize that as it gets national, it's so much harder because it's not... It's not helping you dine because you're not going to dine that broadly. It's not like a good travel companion for you. So we have to think about like, what are we actually saying here? What is the point of view of this, of this guide? And it's something that I think we continue to, to work on. But then the other end of the list is also you have like the world's 50 best list, which is the list I'm most critical of. <laughs> yes, you um, are. <laughs> and it all goes back to how you put it together. You know, like for best new chefs that you and Kate Crater and other people at Food and Wine have done, it's people traveling the country, doing this investigative, I mean, you're not investigative, but you're, you're looking into these places, you're eating at all of these places. And it's, you know, it's the point of view of these exact people. And I can point to them and say like, this is what Dana and Kate think, or this is what whoever's on staff thinks with the world's 50 best. It's all these anonymous people and there's no real vetting to anything they do. They just send in their list of 10 favorite restaurants. No one's asking them to pay for their meals. No one's asking them if they went on junkets to get the meals. No one's asking them, hey, did you make sure you ate at a variety of restaurants of different, you know, price points and origin or whatever. It's just like this random thing, but it's such a juggernaut that they keep doing it and they don't need to change it um, because the the world buys into it. I, th- I think they need to change it. And I, I, and I, I, I But I think that this year, um, I, I think that as with so many things in food and media, there's been a reckoning, mm-hmm. and they, there's a reckoning for the um, yeah. 50 best list. But I was surprised they didn't do they didn't do make it any this statements year. this year. They didn't change anything, and it makes me feel not complicit, but like part of the problem. If we we continue to cover it, because we always say like, oh well, people want to know. We can give the context by saying, here's the bad list, but here it is. <laughs> but like, it's almost like you're trying to you're talking out of two sides of your mouth because we're doing it because we want it's great traffic and it's like a great thing to be able to chew over and talk about. But if we really think this is a bad thing, like maybe we could just be like, Hey, somebody else can cover it and we're going to write the critique of it and like link to somebody else covering the list. It feels like a Trumpian problem, right? You know, because you cover Trump and you're like, how can I keep covering this? Yes. This is horrible. Let somebody else cover it. But then that's always the thing with media. Like do it. Are we, making it worse by overcovering it are we helping the world understand by overcovering it like what do you what do you what's the answer there there's a lot of conversation to try to you know yeah. figure that out and and like work through it sort of every day from where you're sitting you have such um an intimate view of as you're saying the diversity of restaurants and and what's considered a restaurant today which mm-hmm. has changed a lot um the role of chefs today which has changed a lot and i wonder where you feel like we are in the lifespan of restaurants. You know, you've written about how mm-hmm. you think there's too many, like, are there too many restaurants? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> there. I mean, I think that's more related to the, the labor market right now, too. And the, the, I think it's 
the popularity of restaurants has grown so intensely. And I think, you know, we've probably been writing about it forever just with the rise of food TV and people wanting to do, you know, as you know, intimately top chef, um, without necessarily knowing how hard it is. Uh, so people keep wanting to open restaurants, but there are so many market factors that mean they can't all survive. And one of the more recent ones to emerge is there's no labor. And as the unemployment keeps doing going down, that's, I mean, that's great, but also who's going to work in these restaurants. And so you see people because of that and because of other realities of running a restaurant, there's more fast casual popping up. There are more people trying to figure out how do I open a restaurant concept and make money while I don't have to pay for people to actually work in the restaurant. Um, and it makes it less interesting as a diner. Uh, you see this a lot in San Francisco, I think, because there's, there's still this desire to, to create and make great food, but they don't, they can't afford to pay for people to work there. (laughs) So you have a lot of fast casual happening there. Right. Like the, I mean, there's a couple of fast casuals in San Francisco that I think are amazing. Like Duna. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Um, you know, if Duna turns out to be the model, very interesting food, star chefs behind it. And the fast casual part is, um, there's no servers. Right. Right. You bust the tables yourself. You bust the tables yourself. And I feel like, boy, if that could be what fast casual becomes, which is, um, like really well thought out, delicious food that is at a reasonable price point. Their price point is, um, a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. And there, I was, we need to describe to listeners what this food is. It's, um, a mix of, uh, it's sort of a Japanese Hungarian, uh, it has all these crossed influences that, um, one would have seen at, uh, Tartine and it's just, it's really compelling food Mm -hmm. and, in that case, the setting doesn't bother me. It was right. incredibly bare bones. But I think that is a good point that you can do it really well. Like there are people who are adapting to this market and making creative, delicious food. So then the question is like, how important is hospitality, and what mm-hmm. will happen to hospitality? You know, over the long term, you'll have the really, really right. high end. Then you have the. It's not even fast. I don't like fast. Is not necessarily the qualifier. Right, it's like the casual. Bare, yeah, casual. <laughs> it's that you know you're bussing yeah. and there's no there's nothing on the walls. The right. build out was really cheap. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know the equipment isn't so expensive. Like the, so that you can open and uh, afford to run it as a chef. But when I look at this, I wonder what the future for chefs is. Right, mm-hmm. because the, at the high end, I see it. It's, and right. it's, it's narrow, it's elegant, it's super crazy, ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fast casual that could be driven by chefs, but where do the chefs go in this model, do you think? Right, and I think the other fun factor coming in there is chefs now want more professional jobs. Like, I think, I was talking to Dave Chang about this recently, and he was calling it the white colorization of the chef world, and I think a better word might be professionalization, like... He was saying that when he started hiring what are now called millennials, like 10 years ago, he saw this coming. Like these kids don't want the life that he had. They don't want to be screamed at. They can't, they won't stand for it. And they want to be paid a fair wage and they want to have work-life balance. Like there are these things that they want and need that this industry has never provided for people. And there's going to be a, a sort of reckoning of like, how do, how do we make that work? And that's why you see so many chefs leaving for places like Twitter or Google or other like Chipotle's of the world because it's a much more livable life. It's, <laughs> it's true. more, I mean, it's more you, decent life. When you think about it, the idea that you get yelled at, it's hot, sweaty, it's really hard and it's very repetitive. Right. You know, the creativity happens once and then the repetition. And you do it over and over and over and over again. You have to really enjoy that zen of it. And then if you're not making the money and if you're not getting the credit because you're working your way up, it's hard to see how people are going to keep coming into this world. So then what happens? I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm wondering. I think there might be a point where the big operators survive and the ragtag mom and pops don't unless they figure out how to be more professional. Like how is their model? How do we get people to pay more for food so that we can pay people living wages so that this is an actual real world? And like I've covered this when it comes to maternity leave and you know, the big the big factor with maternity leave is that the United States is terrible, but also the <laughs> this is not the restaurant industry is not one that is known for giving you paid leave for any amount of time, whether it's family leave, sick leave, whatever. So without a government compelling you to do it, people are kind of just left, you know, empty handed. 
Right. I mean, I also wonder about the cult of the chef Mm -hmm. because at Food & Wine, we embrace the cult of the chef. You have embraced it one way or another. Sure, yeah. Um, But with the future and watching how hard it is to mint new cultish chefs, Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if that will make people less interested in the business. Right. And then there's fewer chefs. And then... Yeah, it's it's interesting mm -hmm. that, like, the... The celebrity chefs are fewer and far between these days. Like, I don't know if I could name a new celebrity. I was going to ask, how did you know? (laughs) Yeah, like, what's a new celebrity chef you've heard of? Like, you're still, if people are asking you for, like, a very big name, you're still going back to, like, I don't know, like, Guy Fieri or Alton Brown, like, if you're talking about TV chefs or the old, much older people in our world of restaurant chefs. What do you think of the power of the local star? Because, uh, obviously... There's 24 eaters in mm-hmm. um, the local markets, and I and I do find that people have local celebrity. Yeah, that's true. Um, but then it's so hard to. I think it's just yeah, national. pivoting it to a national audience yeah. is is going to be harder. But there's always, I mean, for us, we are storytellers, so we're always going to find some character. There's always going to be like the heroes and the villains, and there's <laughs> there's got to be somebody, and maybe it will go back. Maybe the pendulum will swing back to like the front of house people once again or, or something like that. Like there's always going to be some character in the industry that you can cover and, and listen to. I like the idea of front of ha- like that goes back to hospitality mm-hmm. as being a defining factor right. of making you want to go out and making some place feel special to you. Yeah. Particularly with the rise of delivery, which is another huge. Yeah. Huge, uh, huge market market. And, um, you know, challenge for chefs. It's challenging for them to fulfill the, Orders, it doesn't make them a dime, mm-hmm. um, and yet it's how people want to live. So you, somehow you have to, yeah. And then Uber is going to make all the money off of you. <laughs> they really are. Uber they left. are. Yeah, I know. They're doing like six billion in delivery business this year. It's insane. That is, um, that's crazy. But yeah, so, going back to hospitality, I was talking to one of, one of our critics, Ryan Sutton, last week about a review he was writing of this restaurant, Franchette, in New York. And we were talking about how the most compelling thing about the restaurant wasn't necessarily the food, even though it was good. It was that they were so nice to you. Yeah. And in New York, with brand new white hot restaurants, you rarely get that. It's sometimes still this kind of like, okay, it's going to be two hours. Bye. The front of the house is so special. Yeah. Like the, I walked in. The they, didn't, they didn't know who I was. And they were just like, hello. They were so happy <laughs> to see me. And yeah. they'll just get you a cocktail. It's just so refreshing even though that's of course the way it should be right um when you look and think about the big trends going forward like what do you think that they'll be oh man the big trends i i don't know i'm I'm really curious to watch the delivery space to see what happens there just because there's an opportunity for a lot of weird money to get involved Mm -hmm. and um it's something that's evolving in all these different places around the world um and then, I, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of the money stuff, like following the money, seeing where the business is, like seeing what and how things spread across the country and um, what happens in New York and San Francisco, considering it's so expensive. Like how are people actually opening places here? And, and how are people what, affording to dine out? And, yeah. And how are people going there and, and what's really hitting with people? Um, you know, like the longest I've waited recently was for a little pho shop in Greenpoint. And so you still see these little things pop up and people just become obsessed with them. And I'm curious to see like, okay, will that be there in a year? Will the line be there in a year? Or is it still like these little flashes in the pan? That's interesting. One of the things that I'm obsessed with thinking about is how food has been about nostalgia for so Mm. much Mm -hmm. of time and how nostalgia is actually shaping the future of food in a way that I don't know if it's productive. I wonder what you think. Like when you look at Impossible Meats, they're trying to create meat flavors and meat lookalikes or there's fake tuna or, you know, there's urban farms. You're trying to recreate something agrarian on a rooftop. You're trying to create a burger, which is a nostalgic thing, but you're doing with a robot chef. And so I... I just wonder like, at why, why like <laughs> at, at what point do we create a new position from which we have new thoughts, new memories, and we stop trying to recreate the old because if we're going to grow something out of a plant, mm-hmm. why does it have to look like something else? And if you're going to have right. a robot, why does it have to be sort of doing exactly what, what this been person done? could be doing? Right. Yeah. That's what really interesting. About that? Um, I think, no, I think you're right. I think that's really interesting to watch as well. And, um, 
I think there is also now as people run out of things to do, maybe that's what they're moving towards. And then it also relates back to sustainability, like them trying to figure out like if we are doing bad things to the planet by eating so much meat, could this be the solution? I don't know if that's really going to do it for people. Can't we just eat plants as plants? <laughs> yeah. Just know. like how do you convince people to just, yeah, eat, eat more plants, have yeah. meat be the, you know, just the little seasoning on things. Um, I mean, so many cultures, as you well know. Yeah. Like, that's how they've cooked for millennia. I mean, right. a really long time. I think the embrace of more global flavors, I think, will help with that. At least people are getting much more broader in their palates and what they are willing to eat and are open to eating. So hopefully that will help influence us to be better eaters versus like the steakhouse model. So um, I have one question, then we're going to take a quick break. Um, what is the thing that you're really most excited about? Like you wake up in this world that you cover so well and you're so opinionated about it. Mm-hmm. Um, like what makes you like livid and what makes you happy? Oh my God. Uh, that's so, that's so hard. Cause there's so many things. So broad. <laughs> uh, I, I always just love a weird local story because that's like how I've, I started was a, like as a beat reporter. So we, there was a story a couple weeks ago about the New York city health department banning activated charcoal in food, which is just like the dumbest thing. Like it was <laughs> stupid crazy. of them to do it, but it's also like hilarious for me because <laughs> I think it's a dumb trend yeah. and you, there's a um, high end ice cream shop here called Morgan Stearns where they use it to flavor their ice cream, um, to color their ice cream. And I think it's just basically for Instagram. So having, seeing him throwing out $3,000 worth of product, is just like, it tickles me. <laughs> so whenever there's something weird and, and wild like that going on, I always find it really interesting. And like a similar story was when um, there was a chopped salad chain here that decided to stop chopping the salad in front of you and New Yorkers went wild over it. They were so upset. That me and laugh. it was just like, I love that stuff. So of course the bigger issues, like what's happening with money, what's happening with harassment, like those are the bread and butter of things I obsess over. But like whenever you get a little thing like that, it's like, okay, that's, that's why I'm in this business. <laughs> Um, I have so many more questions for you but we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to find out how Amanda got to this incredible really awesome job that she does so well so stay with us Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hello, and welcome back to Speaking Broadly. Today, my guest is Amanda Clute, who is the editor-in-chief. I love saying editor-in-chief. It's, it's a um, fun title. <laughs> it's, a, it's a title. It's a good one. Um, of Eater, and she oversees 24 um, city sites and everything that, that they do. We were just talking about uh, the banning of activated charcoal, and a question came in from a listener saying, like, what happens with that? Like, why is that a... a cool thing. Right. And I, I forgot to mention it turns the food black. So right. the activated charcoal is used as a coloring agent to make black food. So yeah. it looks really pretty on Instagram. And it also allegedly absorbs toxins in your body. What are your other like Instagram pet peeves, like things you hate that have gone viral? Um, I think the Instagram tradition of breaking open a thing. Uh, I hate that because Sometimes it ruins the thing. Like you tear open a donut and all the cream comes out and it's really good for Instagram. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, you just lost. Like all that cream is now just gone or on your hands. And Will, will uh, yolk porn ever die? No. No? No, I don't think so. Will it? I don't know. I don't know. I think not. Yeah, I don't. I, 
I assume, I think that it's so satisfying for people. and it's Drippy, just oozy, gooey. Drippy, yeah, yolks. But yeah, the cross-section of things, like the incessant cross-sectioning of like a cookie or a sandwich or... It's a lot. You're ready for that to be over. Yeah. Um, so you do have this phenomenal perch. And I and I love that, as I understand it, growing up in Massachusetts, like you didn't have a foodie family. No, 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 I did not. I um, did not. You went to Applebee's famously, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. I worked at Friendly's for a long time. I would go to Applebee's and TGI Fridays when I, whenever we went out. So not a big gourmet background. So uh, how did you end up in food? Uh, when, food, but it's media, really. Sure, yeah. I went obsessed. to journalism school, did a lot of internships at various magazines and newspapers, ended up at Metro, uh, the free newspaper. But I was always, since Eater started in 2005, I was always reading it just because food became like a fun pastime for me, even though I so couldn't how, but, afford But how did it. you get from like fr- truly fr- from friendlies mm-hmm. to obsession? Like I the, think what it, is that meter? Like, how does that happen? I think waitressing was always my way to make money. So even when I was interning, when I was in college, I was always a waitress. So from the ages of 16 to probably 23, I waitressed and you learn the more you do it, like how this is such an interesting world um, from the back end of it. Like, dealing with customer service, dealing with the back of house, like learning how food is made. Um, so I think that was my entry point into being obsessed with restaurants. And I remember in college, one of my assignments for journalism class was to create a website. And so mine was the diary of a waitress. And I would always just like write about like the different things. I thing. love that. Yeah. So it was like, oh, this is, it's Super Bowl Sunday. So it's dead. Or like, here's, you know, <laughs> what it's like when someone hits on you or like all these various stories of, of waitressing. And I think that made me realize like, oh, also this is a world you can write about and talk about and think about in all these different ways. Um, so that's probably how I started getting into Eater, but less from the consumer side of things, um, mostly because it's expensive to go out and the kinds of restaurants that Eater would cover, especially then, were not ones that I could really afford. Right. Um, and you're, it seems like there was this light bulb moment and, or, or maybe not, but your dad took you to like a fancy restaurant. Oh like, yeah, yeah. And then when whenever it was my birthday, I would request like a fancy, fancy meal. And he's a he has pretty Catholic taste in terms of food, so he always wanted to try new things. And my mother does not and <laughs> did not. So I think it was exciting for him to see that, like, oh, here's someone who will like eat fun food with me. Like this is exciting. And so, like, what are what what character do you think is the character of the person who? Um, would excel at the job that you've the jobs that you've had, which is reporting and now editing. I think it's. Um, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's a reporting job. It's a journalism job. So being obsessed with getting a good story, um, talking to a lot of people, and it doesn't it doesn't mean you need to be outgoing because I remember in school they would always say it's sometimes the best job for a shy person because it forces you to go talk to people. And so even now, before I have to make a cold call to someone is still like terrifying for me or like having to go up to somebody and be like, excuse me, I'm writing the story about blah, blah, blah. So it doesn't, can we stop on that? (laughs) That's kind of surprising. Yeah. Is is that because you feel like you're actually a shy person? Yeah. And I feel like I, especially when dealing with strangers. So it's just like having to build up the courage to especially make just phone calls when they're not expecting you. And that's a lot of what reporting is. Um, so how do you find the courage? Like, where does that come from? You just do it. You, <laughs> you just, don't. you just, yeah. Is that like, okay? I have pool. to do it. And that's, what's great about, um, being on assignment for something or having a deadline is you just, you have to do it or nothing gets put up. Um, <laughs> yes. I think that blank space is yeah. like I, a good motivator. one of my, my first job was at Metro and there's the newspaper and you have to put out the newspaper every day. So you have to call the cops to get the comment or you're not going to have the story. And what becomes scary at first, you almost become desperate for it. Like if they don't pick up the phone, you're like, oh my God, I have until four o'clock to get this quote. What am I going to do? And so then you're calling obsessively. And then when they pick up the phone, you're so excited. You're just (laughs) like, oh my God, thank God, I need a comment. So I think there's a lot of that too, is that like your emotions evolve as you are reporting a piece and realize what you need to finish it. And has it gotten easier in fact? I think, I think so. And also now my job, like I'm reporting so infrequently that I, I don't get to deal with that emotional roller coaster anymore. And now it's mostly managing people and talking people through stories. And, and a lot of my job is just like holding the purse strings and deciding like, this is what we are going to spend on. This is what we are not going to spend on. If you're really narrowing down into what I do, um, because it's like, these are what the priorities are. So, right. So your job every 
whatever the time frame is, mm-hmm. is to figure out where to put the resources, where to put the energy. Right, right. Like people, I get emails once a week saying, come to Phoenix. And I have to decide every time, like, no, <laughs> we're going to spend, we're going to spend our resources and energy on something else. And so is that something that just comes naturally after having pitched a lot of stories, written a lot of stories and just understand the DNA of the site? Like, because that's, I, I it's actually, so. it's a slightly different um, skill set, right? Figuring right, right, right. What to invest in rather than being a reporter. I mean, those are. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's completely different. And also managing people is completely different because that's just a whole other world. Um, but yeah, trying to figure out what to invest in. A lot of it is gut and listening to people. And what's nice about our team is we have people on the ground in so many places around the country. So we can hear about like, what are people really caring about? What do people want to see? What do people not want to see? Um, so- and then taking in the input from people above me who are like, okay, priority for the company is X or we are making a lot of money doing Y. So you like think about all those things as you make your decisions. And so is the idea that the there's buy-in from your city sites, like in the largest level, like everybody has voice. Ideally. I mean, I, I, I'm not consulting them on all of the decisions, but hopefully they feel like they do have a say and that they can weigh in if they feel like something is bad or good or if they have an idea for something. That's the biggest thing is like making sure that they can pitch ideas whenever they have them. And the touch of shyness mm-hmm. that um, that you describe in, in terms of a cold call, in terms of managing, does that make managing harder or does that is that sort of a separate bucket. You're like managing people well, is not at all like calling the source. <laughs> managing people is is a little different because so much of it is one-on-one, so it's less um intimidating to me. I think the where the shyness is a problem for me in my job is like if you look at you or other editors and chiefs of big magazines, like there's a lot of public facing things you had to do or that you see Adam Rappaport doing that I am not as into. And so I don't pursue it super aggressively. So I think there are people like we have a communications team where they're like, do Come more. On. <laughs> yeah. So I am sure like as that team also grows, like there'll be more pressure on me to do things like that. And that, that is where I have to like be like, okay, you're just going to do it. Like you're going to do a TV thing or you're going to, I don't know, whatever, whatever the public appearance is. Yeah. I am. Um, I think that stuff is fun. And, and at some point you cross over, like when I got to food and wine, I didn't know anything about food. Mm-hmm. And so every time I went on TV, like TV was just such a, a nightmare because I literally had to have Tini Ulaki, who was the food editor or the relevant editor download everything they knew. <laughs> because I'm sure they're having you cook too, right? Well, I mean, the cooking was so, I would go on the, I mean, not frequently, but I would go on the Today Show and cooking, like I don't cook. Right. I didn't know anything about food. Like it, that was so horrible. Right. You know, just really, and also it's sort of terrible, right? You take everything somebody else knows and then you're the front person. Yeah, like, here I am. Like, <laughs> like just don't ask me beyond like that first question because yeah. all I know is what I'm telling oh you. And over time it got easier because I knew more. And in your case, like you know everything. Um, in but I also, but I don't cook. And so that's, that's what has helped me to avoid TV appearances. <laughs> is that like, well, they want someone for cooking segments. Like, well, I don't, I definitely don't do that. And we don't do recipes. So right. not me. <laughs> <laughs> so actually somebody else. Yeah. So, um, a- along the way in your career, there was a time when you were writing tons and tons and tons, mm-hmm. um, you know, like what people probably do for you, right. multiple put posts today but even more so then I think we've moved away from that like blogging culture I was gonna ask most sites yeah so because you were doing up to 12 Mm -hmm. pieces a day and now you don't have that expectation of people no well also now there's so many other responsibilities you have as someone running a a site so there's you have to put the everything on Facebook and Twitter and you want to workshop it and you want to workshop your headline better so we're also smarter about what we do Uh, and there's a newsletter and it's more important than churning out 12 things. Um, I think it's, it's good training and that it helps you become a very fast and accurate writer, but it's not necessary in terms of what we need to be publishing every day. I think that's a really great evolution. Yeah. 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 You know, like the, so the, it's just, you don't burn people out as fast mm-hmm. and then what you're putting out there just carries more weight because somebody had more time to do it and exactly. they're not chasing like the small, the small leads that are like, meh, you know, the yeah, like the dares. They don't, they don't count for very much, but, um, but in swimming 
through your career, I love the moment where, you know, you actually went and asked for what you wanted. Like, oh yeah, no one asked for what they want. Like most people are like, oh God, I wish I could get that promotion. So can you talk about like... Sure. Yeah. I mean, I um, there was a point in my career when I had been writing the New York site for four years and I was totally done with it. And uh, I felt <laughs> what, what that does that mean? <laughs> I was just tired. It was twelve posts a day. I was I was just a little burnt out on doing that. But I loved the company and the website. And at that point, I think we had grown into over a dozen sites, and there was no one really overseeing all of it. It was kind of every man for himself. Um, and so I proposed to my boss that he hire me as an editorial director to oversee everybody and and help them and guide them. Uh, and he said, you know, no, we don't have that, the budget for that right now. And so I went out, uh, looking for another job because I was tired of writing so much every day and I got another job and it definitely wasn't to get a counter offer. I wasn't trying to like, be like, okay, well, here's, here's my other position. Bye. And that's what my advice to someone would be like, if you are ready to, if you have an offer, you have, you better be ready to leave because they might not counter you. And that's kind of a tricky weasley way to do to get a raise or to get a promotion yeah um but when i came back with the other job he made it happen he made the job i proposed happen because he wanted to keep me and i think that's a good strategy for someone like if you are ready to leave go somewhere else and it would have worked out fine if i went somewhere else Mm -hmm. because i also think like young people should try different places um but i'm i'm glad that it i got to stay how hard was it to like put together that job and have that conversation I think it was hard, but my boss and I, I'd worked for him for four years, so I had a rapport with him. I understood. And like when he told me that it couldn't happen, I wasn't devastated. I understood that this was a small company. You're not going to get everything you want, but I wanted to propose like this is what I think is a good way for us to grow and for me to grow. Um, and I people do that to me sometimes, and I appreciate it so much because Otherwise, you're trying to read people's minds. Like, I don't know what everybody wants to do and how they want to grow. And so if you don't speak up, no one's going to know. I think there's a couple of points there. One, you're actually truly solving what you saw as a problem. Right. right? You had all these sites and you're actually doing the thinking for the brand. Right. And saying, you might not see it because you're running around and doing 9 million things, but right. I see it because right. I'm, I say I'm from my position, I can see that this is needed. And so like offering something that somebody really needs is so helpful. And then it also solves your problem of, right. of just, you know, not ex- experiencing such incredible right. burnout. Yeah. And when people do things like that to me, 80% of the time I can't do anything about it, but it's good to know. And then it might inspire in me like, Oh, okay. Maybe somewhere down the line, we do need to create this position. And every once in a while, I will have been thinking the same thing or I, I do want to move this person into something else and so now I finally know what they want and it's actually really helpful to have that information. And so I've actually seen, I mean, you've made a lot of internal moves which uh, accommodate people's life choices, schedules. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, they want to move across country. Great. They fall in love. Yes. Great. You know. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot. of. It's funny, our national team, which actually has helped us in a way that I never planned, is all over the United States. Like we have what, maybe one or two people working, writing nationally from New York. Uh, and it means that it's harder for that team because they have to meet over conference calls and video conferencing and, and Slack messaging. But it means that our coverage now is very national. So if we have an idea, someone could say from Portland, like, actually, no, like, that's not a thing here. And I never heard of this. And it's actually really helpful. But so yeah, the, the way you can work in 2018 is so much better than years ago when you had to be at a desk. Absolutely. And speaking of at a desk, it brings us to one of the things I admire most, which is it appears you have um, a balance between your home life, which includes your amazing husband, husband Pablo, and your two-year-old son. And, do you pronounce it Ansel? Or Ansel. Ansel. Yeah. Ansel. Um, and work. And work, yeah. And so um, that is everybody's quest. How did you do that? Um, how do I do it? Uh, like, first- do you say, I mean, I guess strategically like you set up in your mind I'm only like are you very routine and rigid very routine and when I before I had Ansel like it was definitely a conversation Pablo and I had like we decided to get a nanny because of the flexibility even though it's more expensive so there was a sacrifice there but we didn't want to be fighting over who was going to run home to be at the pickup at 6 p.m. Uh, and it's true that it happens so many times where I can text her and say like actually I'm going to be home at 7 and she says, okay, great. Like, 
cool. She gets more money. Like, that's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I leave at 8 a.m. on the dot every day. I leave work at 6 p.m. on the dot every day. And, like, again, because work can be more flexible, if there's more work to do, I can do it after he goes to bed, um, which is really nice. But I try not to, but, like, I can. And you can you can always figure out things when the kid is asleep. Um, so I think nanny, for people who are lucky enough to have nannies, that's, like, such a – such a help, a uh, helpful spouse is also really helpful. And I think there's the other point I would make is that for me, seeing him on like, you know, most weeknights, the hour before bedtime and then seeing him on the weekends is enough. And I don't think that's going to be the same for everybody, but for me it is. And I think with work, you can usually get enough done <laughs> between the hours of like nine and six. Like, especially in, People say this and it's become a cliche, but I do think it's true that when you have a kid, you become more efficient because there's just no screwing around. So I think the sacrifice I've made is that there's less work gossip. There's less like going out for lunches. I don't like I'm very efficient when I am at work. Yeah, I think that that can be really hard because that feels like a trade off. Right? Yeah, the, I think, and that is a sacrifice. Like I don't get to go to like a lot of the happy hours that happen after work or there's a lot of that that you miss. But I don't feel like I've sacrificed in terms of my kid or in terms of like the actual work I'm getting done. And you know, because I think one thing, because of how available work is um, digitally every minute of the day, I think a lot of people just work all the time. Oh, they, yeah. they do both all the time. There's yeah. this vision that you can do both all the time. Um, do you do that? No, I try to not be available between 6 and 8 a.m. and p.m. So maybe that sounds like, not enough time off, but it's still like, I, I like having that, that time. Like you're not really going to be able to get me at any hour unless there's a crazy story happening. Um, and the thing is with food journalism, it's never that much of an emergency. Right. You know, I think our, if I was a reporter at our sister site, Vox.com, it would be a little different. They are covering a lot of like crazy stories all the time. I know that they work so hard, but with us, it's, it's, there's important work to be done, but also like you should be able to have dinner with your family. <laughs> like there's, there's not, it's not that crazy. Um, so I think there's that element to it. Um, but yeah, I, I, because my staff is fairly young, I'm one of the first, maybe one of the, yeah, I'm one of the few moms or parents on staff. So I think it's also really important because it models something for them. Like, okay, I can do this. Or okay, if I even if I don't have children, if I sign off at six and I'm unavailable for the rest of the day, like no one's gonna care, and it's not gonna be a thing. And I think that's an important part of our, our culture. I think that's great. I was never really able to do that, mm-hmm. and I, it's probably not good for anybody. You know, I, I think that um, I have that obsessive like, you email me, I'm gonna email you back because I'm gonna show you that I, you right, know, I'm working, I'm working, <laughs> I'm working, and. Um, you know, no, it's a terrible idea. Put the phone down. But that is the the way I think workplaces have evolved is the idea of like, you don't have to be physically seen. It's it. And I think that helps a lot. Yeah. Cause then you're virtually seen, which I think is worse. (laughs) It could be worse (laughs) if you don't set boundaries for yourself. But I remember listening to Tina Brown talking about her days at, it was either the New Yorker or one of her other magazines, but she would go home, like breastfeed, put the baby to bed and then go back into the office and like put out the issue and it'd be her and the other moms. And they would like all take their break from six to 8 PM. And it's like, it's not that, but it, you do have like, there is a flexibility where you can like figure it out no matter how hard your job is. Yeah. I love that. And, uh, is there a woman in the food industry who you admire, who you feel like just, um, you know, leads the way and, is a, um, a guiding light for you in some way. Oh gosh. Um, and it could be anything. I mean, it could be chef, could be farmer. Uh, Oh man, there's so many. I think the one person or there, there, I'm going to name two, um, restaurant industry people who, whenever I read about them or hear what they're doing, I'm just like, Oh my God, that's insane. Christina Tosi and Martha Hoover. So Christina Tosi, as you know, very famous owner of milk bar, just that she's such, she's a, first of all, a genius, like very smart math wizard, but also has run, has created such a successful business kind of quietly. Like I think she's probably more successful than Dave Chang in terms of like (laughs) how much money, like her businesses make money and she's really smart about getting investors and, um, and just makes a product that people really can 
relate to, right? Long on to, relate yeah. to, like, and I think excited about any credit that can be given to her, I think should be. Uh, and then Martha Hoover is a restaurateur in Indianapolis that has about a dozen or so restaurants and is just like very thoughtful in how she treats her employees and how she does her philanthropic work and is just like such a powerful feminist and like gives no fucks. And I just like, I, I love her uh, on her Instagram. It's, um, my restaurants kick your restaurants ass. <laughs> and I just like when I saw that, I was like, wow. Yeah. And she's, you know, she's a contemporary of mine, like a little older. Like mm-hmm. she's just got such moxie. Yeah. She's, she's like ferocious and just also uh, so put together and like kind of subtly glamorous. I'm like, God, I want to be you. Like, who are you? That's awesome. Well, that concludes our show for today. Amanda, thank you so much. If people want um, to follow you and to sign up for your newsletter, mm-hmm. um, where, how do they do both? Uh, you can go follow me at, I'm at Clute on Twitter and on Instagram, which uh, is K L U D K L U D T, uh, and eater.com, I think forward slash newsletters to sign up for our newsletters. And also I'm going to give a plug to our PBS show. <gasps> oh, I want to talk about that. That's okay. That. That's okay. But please check it out. It airs every Tuesday at 9 PM. Uh, it's with Marcus Samuelson and he is exploring immigrant cuisine throughout America. And it's really great. I think you guys will love it. Well, let's just talk about, cause the, it launched and we saw, um, the immigrant population in Detroit, mm-hmm. which is Lebanese. And I mean, it, there's so many cultures, yeah, Arab American. So all over like Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, on Yemen, um, so many different cultures coming together. So do you have a favorite episode? The Chicago episode is probably my favorite. So that's going to be the third one that runs. It's about the Mexican community in Chicago. Um, I think it, because it pulls at your heartstrings a little bit, especially right now, uh, but also the food, just like uh, I can't get enough of that food. So uh, check that out in two weeks. And what was it like being a pro- – because you have a producer credit on it. Yeah, it was uh, – it's it was completely new for us to to see this and to work with television professionals and see how they do it as well. So we were always guiding the stories and helping with the research, but to see how you can turn these stories into something that actually you want to watch for fifty minutes is was really incredible for me to experience. I was wondering, actually, it would be so great for um, a production company to have like your team yeah. doing the research and because I was like how did you find these people you right know, like, and so- to lead the conversation in terms of like making sure the tone is right and that you're not stereotyping these people and you're not exoticizing these people and like that I think was an important role that we played um but yeah I just think like he does he does such a good job too like he Marcus Samuelson is the most divine like he has brings so much joy to every interaction he right. genuinely like you feed him something's like it's a, you just feel his joy in eating it. that food and meeting the families yeah. and the people and celebrating the immigrant experience and it is his experience as well as right. those of the people he's talking to so he's not like this outside dude who needs to yeah, like he knows, ask those questions he knows what it means to have multiple meanings of home but can also say like you know what I come from Sweden so I was very privileged but so I know the immigrant experience but also I don't know what your experience was like so like let's talk about it that's well. Congratulations on Thank that. You. It's really it's so fun. It's it's very exciting having seen just the uh, first episode last night, and it, it made me want to get on a plane and go to Detroit, which I don't think is actually the point. Even the show's called No Passport Required, so you can travel to these different countries, but within the United States. But the the food's so glisteny, mm-hmm. and the, it does seem so foreign, right? And yet it is like a two hundred dollar plane ticket away. Yeah, you explore all these different worlds. There's an Indo Guyanese episode about New York, and I've never been to any of those restaurants that they cover, and it was just like so educational for me because it is in my backyard, and I have no idea. So the next thing, because we were talking earlier about how you know you just keep adding things, like you hadn't produced TV before, yeah. you hadn't done video before, you <laughs> hadn't done podcasts before, but now you need to to do like a tour company and set up tours in each city that are no That'll passport be our required. New, our new revenue model. Your new revenue yeah. model. Yeah, we'll make $10 on that. But um, uh, thank you for joining. Thank this you. is um, Dana Cowan. Thank you guys for listening. Um, you know where to find me at FW Scout at, on Twitter and on Instagram. And we'll be back next week for another great show. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.